Coming up today, Germany looks to block one of the world's biggest porn websites, and we look at where cryptocurrency and Bitcoin are going next. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Matt Burgess, and joining me this week is Natasha Bunnell. Hello. And Jan Volpicelli. Hi. This was the week when Twitter started to take a leaf out of Reddit's book and is trialling upvote and downvotes. The voting buttons are likely to be arrows or thumbs up and down. However, Twitter was keen to emphasise that this is not a dislike button. Jeff Bezos briefly flew into space on a phallic-shaped rocket ship this week, completing an 11-minute journey aboard his company Blue Origin's New Shepard launch vehicle. When he landed, he thanked all the Amazon customers and workers for funding his trip, sparking criticism from people who claim he treats workers poorly and does not pay his fair share of taxes. Yeah, so there's uh, both of our... um recent billionaires uh, into space or near space as we discussed uh, on the podcast recently um, and yeah it's good yeah. good to see Natasha that Jeff Bezos made it back uh, safely it's true we all watched um, we were all on slack watching him his ascent and then his descent and I just remember thinking it was completely absurd they had this sort of commentary going on right where they were saying oh you know people have really deep experiences and thoughts when they see the vastness of space and they you know rethink everything and then when he got up there all we heard was woohoo wah and then someone said it's really dark up here and I thought doesn't this sum up this whole experience of sending billionaires to space. I mean, imagine spending millions of dollars on a ticket to go to space and some person next to you is just screeching woohoo the entire time. I'd be so annoyed. And then, yeah, when you get back, just talking about uh, how everybody else uh, paid for your trip as well. Um, yeah. So there we go. <laughs> for uh, just goes to show. interesting facts this week, uh, Natasha, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so I, I learned this week um, that in Alaska, wood frogs can go eight months without peeing. Uh, so recycling urea, which is the main waste in urine, into useful nitrogen keeps these little frogs alive as they hibernate and freeze inside and out. It doesn't warm them up. So, yeah, it's one of the longest periods of time that an animal in any part of the world can go without having a wee. So that was what I learned this week. Well, I'm not actually going to even ask how you learned that one, but uh, we will we will move on. Um, Jan, what have you got for us this week? Yeah, I didn't learn it this week. I've known it for a while, but I haven't been here many times, so I'll just give you my fact of the year. The fact of the year is that uh, the Russian word for train station is voxel, uh, which, according to one theory, was inspired by the London train station of Vauxhall. So apparently, the, the story goes that some Russian delegation visited Vauxhall, were so impressed that they decided to borrow the word to christen uh, just the concept of train station in Russian. Uh, there are people disputing this, uh, but I think it's a great theory, at least. It's legitimate. I have a lot of things to say about Vauxhall. It is possibly among my top five favourite stations of London, which doesn't say much because it's not that great but I'm glad that the Russian delegation was so impressed that they thought you know this is the way to go we've got to call all stations after Vauxhall for their, which... for, for their what was top one clearly right I mean all stations have Vauxhalls 
Yeah, I mean, if it were me, I would say something like Elephant and Castle, something that has a bit more of a ring so to it. So it would be Zlon i Zamka, I think. Zamak. Zlon i Zamak, Elephant and Castle. Uh, anyway. I love, the, <laughs> I love the way we've got a Russian speaker on here, so it's all very convenient. Anyway, so from Vauxhall to German porn, apparently, our first story this week is about German regulators who are set to turn off the porn tap. In the coming weeks, people who want to access one of the world's largest porn sites will soon find themselves unable to because of a political spat. Matt Burgess, what has happened? So, yeah, in Germany, child protection regulators are about to issue a blocking order for one of the world's largest porn sites for people that are living in Germany. The move, if it is enacted, would make the website inaccessible for anybody trying to access it if they're based in Germany. Um, and the bo- blocking order is set to be issued by the Commission for the Protection of Minors uh, in the media, which is a child protection body in Germany. Um, and overall, the setup in Germany is pretty bureaucratic and there's quite a few different organisations and bodies that uh, deal with uh, child protection issues but this body is known as the KGM and it represents local media authorities uh, for all of Germany's states and they are trying to use an interstate treaty which was created sort of like 20 years or so ago to say that websites serving uh, adult material pornographic material should be blocked because uh, they haven't put in place age checks that are out outlined in this one particular law and the regulators say that the move is to stop children from accessing adult material online Um, and we believe that the website that is due to be blocked is a website called x hamster which is one of the biggest uh, pornographic websites in the world and receives millions of uh, visitors every day Um, however the kgm and x hamster wouldn't confirm this but there have been other documents and other uh, other reporting around this to say that uh, x hamster is impacted by some of the efforts from the regulators and it's one of a number of cases that the kgm has against uh, adult websites at the moment. So there are three other three other cases that are believed to be open against uh, websites uh, which are YouPorn, Pornhub, and My Dirty Hobby. Uh, all of those three are owned by the the giant uh, pornographic company and sort of marketing company as well called MindGeek. Um, and these other three cases are stuck uh, in legal battles in the courts and that they may go ahead in coming weeks or stuff like that. But the main sort of focus at the moment from regulators is around uh, is around X-Hamster. So X-Hamster, a really interesting name to call a big porn site, I must say. Um, but so the story here is that regulators have been trying for some time to force pornographic websites introduce age verification checks which could involve uploading identity documents we're talking about something that's been happening since september 2019 right so sometime much of this has been published by one state regulator but is now being handled as you said before by the kjm so these kinds of sort of age checking systems to make sure that the visitors aren't children they they're sort of been put as something that people want so that only adults can access these sites but in all four of the cases that you mentioned the pornographic websites are accused of of not doing any of those things so what has happened here what has x hamster done that is different from the other ones they've ignored this order but have the other ones respected it i don't really understand what's what's going on here 
Yeah, so it's a, it's an overall, it's a bit of a sort of like complicated situation and there's uh, the various cases are all at different stages. But essentially, um, these uh, the regulators started to uh, contact uh, some of the porn websites in around sort of September 2019 and then sort of going on from there, asking them to put in place age checking uh, systems for all visitors to prove that people that were accessing adult material were over 18. Um, and in particular, they focused on these four websites that we mentioned because they all have German language versions of the website so if you go to them you can visit like a German language uh, homepage and videos have sort of German language uh, titles and and all of the sort of like setup is uh, built for people in Germany so they're not looking at the international versions they're looking at the specific German versions uh, and with uh, Xhamster or at least believed to be Xhamster uh, in the sort of most advanced case um, they were contacted by regulators in March 2020 uh, and then the other websites were contacted by the regulators in June 2020 um, so during this time, there hasn't actually been any response from uh, the ex-Hamster website owners. Uh, the request to sort of introduce age verification was ignored, um, whereas in the other three cases, they have gone to court and that's uh, it's sort of being challenged legally by the owners of the websites. Um, and the, in particular with ex-Hamster, it's thought to be the most advanced case of the four in Germany. Um, and in the last few weeks, it has ramped up sort of even further. So at the end of June, um, the KJM, the regulator, identified the Dutch company that hosts X-Hamster and asked it to make the website unavailable. So they already essentially issued one blocking order to the host provider, which sits uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, but at the time of uh, writing this story last week, that um, the order to ask them to block X-Hamster hadn't been responded to. Um, and, and as far as I'm aware, hadn't been responded to further. So at that point, essentially, the regulators were saying that they are uh, ready to or in the process of being ready to issue a blocking order against German internet companies. So in reality, this means that they would issue a blocking order against uh, four uh, of the biggest web providers, uh, which are Vodafone, uh, Deutsche Telekom, O2 and One and One, demanding that they block um access to X-Hamster from people who are visiting in Germany. So essentially they tried to contact uh, X-Hamster directly to ask them to put age verification checks in place. Then they went to the host providers and now they've gone to internet service providers in Germany to sort of essentially cut off uh, access to website at the source. And if this sort of blocking order does go ahead, um, the largest uh, providers will be targeted first which are the ones that I just mentioned um, and then essentially it's more likely to be that there will be a block on the domain name system DNS uh, system which uh, just to talk through how it would probably work is uh, if you were browsing the browsing the web and uh, typed the X hamsters URL into your browser's address bar uh, this is converted into an IP address by the DNS system and essentially imposing a block would mean that anybody typing in that address would uh, not be able to sort of access the website there may be other ways around it by literally typing in the IP address straight away um, but that's the sort of situation where that sort of block is at and how it would work and it will now uh, when this order is issued fall upon the sort of German web companies to respond it's probably likely that they will uh, challenge this blocking order uh, through the country's legal system and the the uh, the the ISP, the German uh, internet providers, told us that essentially um, they will look at it when the order comes and they will make a decision on what to do next. And they pointed out, uh, giving a bit of an indication of their uh, potential sort of uh, view on this, that it's a, there's a high legal standard needed in Germany for a website to be blocked. So I think that it's unlikely that they will comply with this in the very first case.
But in theory, they they could. And this is a really interesting scenario because the inaction from Exhamster doesn't really matter, right? They can just block any kind of website that doesn't comply with regulators at the source. So even if Exhamster carries on working as usual, no one in Germany can see what's on there. So effectively, they've, they've, you know, cut it at the knees. So this is really a story about, you know, a major worldwide porn site being taken down by German regulators. But underlying that is a story about control. Now governments are intervening massively in internet privacy. And this is a prime example of internet censorship, right? So if companies refuse to comply with regulators' orders, they could be taken off the internet. Although there have been several efforts that have been similar to this in other countries, including the UK, this is really the first time that a regulator has actually decided it's going to block a site over this issue. Should, should we expect other regulators to follow suit? Yeah, so the move from the German regulator, the KGM, comes at a time when there's a lot of scrutiny on the porn industry online in general. Um, and it's probably one of the more extreme uh, measures that we've seen so far. Um, as we say, that the blocking may not go ahead. It, it, there may be other legal challenges or stuff that happen um but at the stage of talking about this it seems like that's the move that they're wanting to do um so at the end of last year uh, more broadly the new york times published a, a big piece on pornhub and issues of child exploitation uh, and abuse on the website and as a result of this uh, pornhub ended up deleting more than sort of half the videos on its website and introducing new verification checks for uh, people uploading videos um and essentially that has uh, led to sort of more scrutiny of the adult uh, entertainment industry online and sort of some of the checks but so equally at the same time there have been a number of efforts to introduce age verification uh, proving you are an adult when you're accessing uh, one of these websites uh, for the last few years so uh, regular podcast listeners might remember a few years ago uh, sort of in the build-up to 2019 the UK was set on introducing age verification checks on adult websites uh, and it was something that rumbled on for quite a few years um, and was uh, dubbed the porn block here in the UK um, and I think we talked about it over a bunch of different podcasts um, in in, in yeah, various times uh, but essentially that was uh, canned in 2019 uh, due to be, it being unworkable on some levels and also because of a, it faced a huge privacy backlash but now around the world there is a mo there is a movement to introduce age verification checks on adult websites more broadly so uh, in Europe the auto the audiovisual media service directive uh, which is being discussed and, and sort of implemented requires companies to put measures in place to protect children online a bill in Canada is looking to introduce age verification in a similar way but has uh, in but has faced privacy concerns Australia has recommended using digital IDs to access pornography and officials in Utah have been pushing a law that would require new smartphones and tablets to have pre-installed and on by default filters so essentially if you try to access a, an adult website site uh, in Utah, uh, then you would potentially be faced with a, a straight up uh, page uh, saying that this isn't available and it needed to be approved uh, to access it. Um, that hasn't come into force yet, but there are concerns around that on sort of like constitutional levels and things. But it's part of this broader movement uh, that is looking at sort of how uh, the porn industry is regulated uh, online. And what is particularly important about the German case is one where it is possibly uh, more extreme than sort of other efforts that we've seen around this um, so the actual step of blocking websites uh, and making them inaccessible to people um, is one that has gone further than sort of any other efforts around the world and 
as part of some of the UK laws around uh, the ones that were that were cancelled around this, there was uh, talk of being able to sort of block uh, block websites in a similar way. But because those laws never came into place and uh, and they were debated over quite a long time, there was uh, that was seen as more of a sort of like last resort measure. Whereas within Germany, some of the uh, some of the setup is that um, there's lots of different laws in place and there's sort of questions around whether uh, some of the laws that exist and are trying to be sort of uh, enforced upon. On, uh, the websites at the moment are even sort of like really legally binding and there's questions about sort of uh, various different steps of it so essentially uh, sort of people in Germany have compared some of these blocking efforts to censorship and how uh, how much control the state wants to enforce over um, some of the uh, online websites uh, the pornographic websites that are oper operating in space but um, yeah it's one of those that's much more sort of advanced and uh, further sort of down the process than other countries. So at this point, ex-hamster could still turn around and say, we'll comply with what you're asking us to do. We'll install, you know, age verification tools on our website. Please let us continue to operate. And all of this could go away, right? But, but what does this mean for the balance of power? So if regulators turn around and decide that data should be gathered or ID shown to access porn, are, are we entering into really major privacy issues there? You, you kind of talked about censorship, but, but we're talking about potentially having to show personal information when you want to access part of the internet. It, this is a kind of a slippery slope, isn't it? I mean, people talk about porn and, and they talk about, you know, safety of children. And of course, everyone agrees that children shouldn't be accessing uh, pornography online. It shouldn't be something that c could be a click away. But at the same time, if you put something on porn websites, you might say the same for gambling websites. It might be the same for other sways of the Internet. And suddenly you're in the situation where you're sharing a lot of your personal information to access content that up until now was free to access to anyone. Uh, it, that's that's a slippery slope, right? So, yeah, I've been spending quite a few, basically, the last few years looking at this sort of thing, reporting on it in the UK and now a bit more internationally. And it does seem that there's quite a few of the same sort of issues that come up uh, time and time again. Uh, privacy being the main one and people's sort of like willingness to share uh, their personal details uh, to access um, restricted material online. And as mentioned, sort of in Germany, it would be uh, one of the one of the more extreme set steps we've seen to block this uh, but generally sort of the efforts around age verification technology are sort of uh, growing and continuing online um, so Germany is likely to keep pushing adult companies to install age checks even if the legal cases go on for a long time or if ex Amster and others do decide to put them in place and from speaking to some of these companies not recently but in in recent years um, they have some of the adult companies are keen to put these types of checks in place. They don't want uh, children accessing uh, pornographic material, um, but there are sort of questions about sort of the impact on their business model and sort of like how regulations are put in place. Um, and equally, the companies behind the sort of ID checking technology uh, say that they don't have to share people's identity with adult websites. So one of the big things about this type of approach is you can have uh, an adult, uh, sorry, an age verification company that essentially sits in the middle between the user and the uh, websites which have got age checks placed upon them and then you essentially verify your id with this company that is in the middle and then they just tell the website that you're trying to access whether it is a porn website or a gambling website that that person is over 18 or not over 18 and then you get access to it or you don't get access to it um 
And essentially, in some areas, this is thought as better than uploading your ID, like a passport scan or a driving license scan to a porn website directly. But there are also uh, questions about sort of adding another middle layer into the mix and sort of like more widely, whether in society that is something that we want to become commonplace where you are um, sharing your ID and stuff all the time to access different types of material. Um but as we've seen sort of in Germany, um, people's privacy is one of the concerns that does uh, keep rearing its head. So one company, one international company uh, in Germany is using age checking software already. And as far as I can tell, it's the only international porn website in Germany to be doing so. Um, and this is a website that is called um, Fan Centro, which is a, a sort of an alternative to um, OnlyFans. Um, so I think that that is a, an example of one company that's put that in place. Um, and they say that their move from them has gone down with its German influencers because they feel protected uh, knowing that people that are viewing their content will be over 18. Uh, but equally, uh, they also say that these verification checks cost money uh, per user that wants to uh, verify um, themselves uh, that they have to pay for. And then also they do say that they have seen uh, a percentage of adults and they wouldn't reveal the percentage um, who still don't feel comfortable uploading their ID to an adult site or to a provider in general. So there's this question of how much will this really restrict visitors? And hopefully that company will share its its numbers in the future. But at this stage, they didn't want to say how much of an impact installing these uh, checks had had other than that it had had some. There's a huge wider conversation going on about, you know, how to safeguard people online, uh, how to safeguard vulnerable people um, for, from, you know, harmful content um, online, not just in the pornography um, side of things, but also in social media, etc. I, I wonder, uh, with this scenario, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the porn sites are under pressure um, to comply with, with these sort of access restrictions. I remember reading, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would have as well, that, you know, children at any point when they're using the internet are just a few clicks away from extreme content, whether it's hardcore pornography or, or violence, etc. I mean, we're talking about a wider issue here that goes beyond, you know, pornography websites. It, it's not necessarily fair, I suppose, to think that they're the only ones having to comply with this age verification system or be shut down when there's so many other parts of the internet where people can readily access much of the same content without any of those measures being suggested or put in place. I wonder, will these effects um, ultimately, what, what, the, what the regulator wants to do in Germany, will it actually work? Can they actually protect children by doing these things? Can we stop them from accessing hardcore porn? And in fact, is the targeting of these companies fair when there's so much content in other places of the internet that they can access anyway yeah it's a essentially it's a super complicated issue um so it to speak uh, about the uh, the German setup and, and the sort of like introduction of age verification technology generally. Um, technologically, people can obviously use a VPN or Tor to get around uh, these sort of uh, location-specific blocks or bans if they're put in place. Um, and we know that sort of like teenagers obviously uh, are very aware of this. So some recent research uh, has found that 40% of teenagers uh, surveyed had used a VPN or Tor in the past uh, in, in recent months and another 23% knew who knew what they were so you've got the vast majority of teenagers there uh these were teenagers that were in the uk uh that were surveyed about this knowing about ways to essentially get around this type of thing uh using a, a vpn or tor uh 
in in any way um but and regulators sort of acknowledge that as well and they sort of say that these these types of age checks aren't meant to be sort of 100% foolproof and that people will be able to get around them but it will uh be able to stop uh some people uh accessing uh this type of material um and and limit the da- damage or harm in that way um and essentially on the broader points i think that sort of there are um a lot of ongoing efforts on ways to look at how to protect people online and these all of these types of questions are super difficult and not easy to uh easy to answer really and there's not any as far as i'm aware not any country or system that's really got uh effective measures in place to protect people online um and that's because the issues that we're dealing with around sort of things around privacy and censorship and what constitutes uh, harmful material, whether it is uh, violence or whether it is uh, children accessing pornographic material. Lots of these things are, and abuse online in general, lots of these things are very hard to define in some cases and even harder to sort of police and be able to sort of control. Um, There's issues about uh, questions about people's uh, identities uh, when they're online um, and there's lots of other areas where sort of regulators are looking at ways to try and sort of uh, basically regulate the online space and this is all comes back to lots of big questions around sort of who should be regulating this space what are the responsibilities of platforms whether it's big technology companies or porn websites what are what are the roles of individuals are there ways to sort of have better uh, online and digital media literacy for people um, and it's all sort of like tied up in this big messy ball essentially that i'm not going to try and answer at this stage but i think that it's it's worth pointing out that all of these issues are are linked in some ways whether it is uh whether you're talking about sort of the regulation and control of uh pornographic material or things that are different types of harms for uh, for different types of people and it also like as as you pointed out natasha uh depends on the type of platforms uh you're targeting as well because uh as as probably i'm sure many people know uh even if you work weren't uh going to a, a porn website you can easily find uh porn on twitter or reddit or other places so they're all super complicated issues and i don't think there's any easy answers really but uh we want to know what you think um le- what do you think around the uh verification methods that are being put in place uh in, in germany or elsewhere is where you live uh looking to put these types of measures in place for pornographic material how are countries trying to regulate uh people online where where you are and what what do you think about them email us at podcast at wired.co.uk we always love to read your feedback and we'll read out as much as we can at the end of every show for our second story this week we're talking about cryptocurrency with jan and jan you have written a book on this i have written a book indeed yes <laughs> it's called cryptocurrency how digital money could transform finance and it's all about the past present and future it's a fantastic read and as many people as can should buy it and it's available now in all good bookshops for 8.99 and we'll include a link to where you can buy it in the show notes um and Jan, you've spent the last several years, really, uh, running excitedly into crypto land. Uh, you're our resident crypto expert. You know more about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency than anybody else on our staff. Uh, and you really sort of like know this world inside out. But let's start by looking at where all of this uh, began way back in 2008 and how things have changed since then. Yes, indeed. It has been quite a cavalcade. Uh you referenced 2008, which is when Bitcoin uh, was invented. 
uh, with the famous uh, Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. Uh, what, what really struck me throughout these years is that, so Bitcoin was invented to, in a way, to meet the needs of a very specific set of people, people who call themselves crypto anarchists or cypherpunks. They really wanted some kind of means of payment that was decentralized and therefore independent of banks and governments. So a kind of payment that could not be blocked, could not be censored. If I wanted to buy, I don't know, of course, drugs or a Bible in a radically anti-Christian country, I might be able to do it without having a bank blocking the payment. But the other uh, kind of um, that, that, that piece of the reasoning, the rationale was that uh, this uh, payment system should also be independent of central banking uh, because the idea was that central banking would uh, use inflation and uh, activate the money printer to undermine uh, the value of currency. Uh, so it was a kind of Austrian economic uh, school point of view. Uh, and so that's how it started. What was interesting to me was that over time, as new cryptocurrencies and projects evolved, the idea of removing uh, intermediaries, removing middlemen, uh, transmogrified into something else, uh, especially with the rise of um, another cryptocurrency called Ethereum, which was created in order not only to allow for payments, but also to create decentralized, leaderless, managerless uh, businesses, essentially, essentially just accounts, money accounts, crypto money accounts that could interact with, with each other using software subroutines automatically. The idea was not only about removing um, middlemen and governmental authority, but it was about removing people altogether. And so, in a way, the uh, crypto-anarchist um, Austrian economical um, school of thought evolved into something else, which I would probably call a extreme technocratic or techno-populist kind of uh, school of thought. Someone else calls it automatist. So the idea that uh, we should just remove people from the equation and that would make us happy. Uh, so these are all very niche and very, I think, techy, in a way, Silicon Valley, even if it's not, it's not only about Silicon Valley kind of ideologies. What is interesting, of course, right now is that crypto is going mainstream and the, the narrative around it is a bit different. It's a bit more conventional. It's about, well, Bitcoin, for instance, is a very good uh, hedge against inflation. So in a way, there is still a kind of uh, Austrian element there, but it's much more conventional. Institutional investors are stepping in and we see big tech, such as, for instance, of course, Facebook uh, stepping in and at least trying to double, to, da to double in crypto in a way. Uh, they try to launch Libra, then try to sort of reinvent it as something a bit less threatening to governments as DM, which is a kind of cryptocurrency, albeit some some will dispute that description. Um, but of course, you also have people like Elon Musk, which, I mean, talking about crypto and specifically a joke cryptocurrency called Dogecoin on Saturday Night Live, uh, and essentially 
single-handedly making and breaking cryptocurrencies via tweet. So crypto, I'm not sure what the ideology is right now uh, behind crypto, but certainly it is entering the mainstream. And in a way, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the next big thing will be now that it's a stop being just some kind of uh, niche or at least niche ideology backed construct. Yeah, and as you mentioned there, sort of like the real shift over the last few years has been uh, some, from it going to sort of this niche area to being a lot more mainstream and people uh, really understanding what, uh, in some ways, what what cryptocurrency is. And particularly with Bitcoin, we've seen a couple of big uh, price spikes over over recent years and then and then drops as well. Um, and what what is the um, sort of like What's it been like to report on this industry for multiple years? And who are the who are the people that uh, sort of are behind this and driving this? And how has that changed, really? Yeah, it has been pretty interesting uh, because you have really, I mean, I was really been able to, I was really able to sit from up close how the, the sphere evolved, right? So it started with these radical coders or also just libertarian ideologues. I remember some, someone called Roger Ver, also known as Bitcoin Jesus, coming to London in 2014 with a, with a suitcase saying this suitcase contains like three billions or something like that. My whole life and my whole fortune is here. And thanks to Bitcoin, I'm, this, this whole single suitcase is, is worth more than you know, the Singapore's whole central bank or something like that. Uh, so uh, you saw those kind of figures, uh, but you also saw, and you, you still see people who are um, just very deep thinkers about designing ecosystems or de designing political communities, if you wish. Because if you create a cryptocurrency and the kind of decentralized network around it, the blockchain that underpins it, you have, in a way, to make sure that it it works with alongside the community, right? So you have to make it cheat-proof. You have to make sure that the confidence uh, behind uh, the cryptocurrency, underpinning the cryptocurrency is not undermined, otherwise the project will fail. So you really have these people who are um, wargaming all the time and trying all different kind of models to design something that is supposed to be the start of a community and it's supposed to be and very often is something that is going to be very valuable you're going to play with a lot of money there and so it's, it's really deep thinking people who I, I i'd say yeah community architects and therefore you also find a lot of not necessarily fringe but very political figures also being drawn to the crypto world right so uh, you might have remembered that Steve Bannon, uh, the former White House chief strategy under Donald Trump, at some point said that cryptocurrency, he would launch a cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency would be the, would be the, the start of a populist movement, hence the techno-populist label. And in a way, again, it was sort of still steeped in that idea that you want to uh, dodge the scrutiny of banks, uh, of tech companies, and of the central uh, bank, the Federal Reserve. Uh, and so you, you, you have these kind of uh, contaminations. You also have, on the other side of the spectrum, people like Glenn Weil, which is a very famous economist and possibly even philosopher who has been proposing using crypto 
by dint of the fact that crypto communities are, as I said, underpinned by code. And so they minimize both centralization and censorship and third thing, free riding. So th these things are self-enforcing. So you can really try how a community works when it's not possible to cheat or it's not possible to obviously cheat. And so I suppose using blockchains to test new kind of uh, community organizational models. Um, so it's, it's just been a fascinating ride. Of course, alongside these intellectuals, you find the chances, the hackster, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street kind of people, all of which uh, organize wonderful parties. So I really urge everyone to sort of report on cryptocurrency, if anything, just to try some nice sushi. And sushi, sushi aside, um, whenever there is, uh, whenever you're talking about uh, money, there is politics that comes into this as well. And as you were just talking there, you mentioned uh, various people in, involved in politics at certain different levels. Um, how much of like crypto is currently tied up in the politics of the uh, of the different cryptocurrencies that exist and like has that sort of changed do you think since it's gone a bit more mainstream has it become less political is it less about the ideology yes i i was reading this book the other day by uh lawrence lessig which said something uh, which is this legal scholar and also um software analyst who said something along the lines that initially all software all code starts being the tool, I mean, I'm certainly paraphrasing and misunderstanding, but the tool uh, of an ideological group, right? So you, you write this code, you write this software in order to achieve certain political slash ideological goals. And as things go mainstream, the code stops being that. It just starts becoming business. And business is less political, usually, because you don't really want to I don't know, mount an offensive against uh, the US government if you are a business which is created to make money. So I think the kind of same mechanics you are, being, uh, you are seeing right now in crypto, right? It started being this political project, if not political statement, uh, at least aesthetically, uh, and now uh, the, the big bucks are coming in. Now a lot of the decentralization um, dream, if you wish, sorry for the cliche, uh, is being captured by uh, big corporate players like the, uh, the online exchanges, which are uh, listed on the New York Stock Exchange uh, or the wallet companies, which have to observe in, in certain countries, uh, certain um, know your customer anti-money laundering regulation, which of course defeats the whole purpose of having anonymous, unblockable, uncensorable payment systems. I think that um, since crypto is not totally fully mainstream yet and it can't survive, it, it can't sort of remain in a way uh, running in a parallel way, in a sort of more uh, low-key, dark way without relying on these players, on these corporate players, I think there still is a significant kind of um, political element to it, but it's certainly been diluted a bit. Uh, what might be happening right now, though, is that as Bitcoin and cryptocurrency at large uh, start being regulated and considered as legitimate investments by 
several big players in many countries, institutional investors even, like asset managers, uh, pension funds, companies such as Tesla and SpaceX. Uh, the geopolitics of, block, of Bitcoin and blockchain will become much more important. For, so uh, we haven't really touched upon it yet, but the way Bitcoin is produced, if you wish, the way these units of value are produced is through a process called mining, which requires a lot of energy and a lot of computers. Up to a couple of months ago, I think 60-70% of these mining rigs were in China, and now China is cracking down on it. And we are seeing a kind of re rebalancing of where mining uh, is uh, done, is carried out. So more countries might sort of rise at the mining capitals of the world. And that, that means, uh, of course, that there, there will be a kind of scramble to get uh, most miners uh, fleeing China. Because don't forget, if you control the mining, in a way you also have the potential, I mean, it's not that easy, but you have the potential to control the network. So you don't really want uh, all mining con concentrated in one country only. So I, I, what, I'm, I'm looking, what I'm checking right now is really the exodus out of China and the kind of geopolitical trends deciding where miners will settle down. It's more geopolitical than political, though. It seems that that, that is going to drive quite a lot of change in the next few uh, sort of months and years around sort of where uh, mining takes place. And we've also seen, as you've sort of mentioned there, a bit around sort of the, uh, well, a lot of criticism around um, crypto mining's uh, environmental impact. So we've seen uh, a lot of uh, people uh, really rightly highlighting the amount of uh, computing power it takes to mine and sort of the, the consequence of uh, the energy use on the planet generally. Um, so it seems that that's folded into some of these sort of like discussions around what comes next around cryptocurrency. Um, but really, I guess sort of like with all these different like factors combined around sort of controlling the ecosystem, the environment, the the politics, the, the money side of things, uh, where do you sort of see crypto more broadly going next? Right. Uh, I think it, there will be various places where crypto will go, of course. And one thing uh, is that regulation is coming. We have seen regulation being announced or being implemented in various countries, from the US to the UK to Europe itself. And so uh, a lot of crypto will become a bit more straight-jacketed. It, it will become, in a way, a more mainstream and legitimate kind of investment as opposed to being the uncensorable means of payment that was used to buy drugs on Silk Road in 2013. Uh, and, and that's where like the big bucks will probably go. What we also see, though, is, I think, at least, the kind of... The, the, the retail element of it is goes hand-in-hand hand with the memification of finance, right? We have seen, we've all seen, and some of us uh, have laughed, other, others have been very angry. Um, Elon Musk's uh, tweets about Dogecoin, but also Bitcoin and all kinds of cryptocurrencies. Uh, and also the, way, also the way that Dogecoin became one of the most traded assets on American trading app uh, Robinhood, which rose to fame for being the kind of arena where uh, the GameStop uh, frenzy played out early this year. So essentially people buying assets, financial assets, just for, for the lulz, really, just to have a laugh. Uh, 
and and so I, I wonder how much of the meme uh, stocks slash meme coin craze will capture some elements of crypto. Dogecoin for sure seems to be heading in that direction. So we will see possibly people like, I don't know, uh, asset managers and pension funds or high net value individuals buying Bitcoin and uh, storing it in some vault in Switzerland while uh, your Zuma brother or your Zuma sister uh, trades Dogecoins and other uh, let's say shock coins, uh, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the, the other thing that I think derives out of it is that um, thanks a bit to the mimification, but also to the NFT phenomenon, which we have discussed another time. Essentially, NFTs are a kind of crypto adjacent objects, assets, which uh, are used as stand-ins for unique digital objects. Uh, we will see, or at least many people think we will see uh, a nexus, the sort of merging of the crypto slash blockchain world with gaming. So many people want to see cryptocurrency becoming the official or unofficial or de facto um, currency of gaming worlds or the metaverse, if you so wish, uh, or some kind of cryptocurrency architecture uh, like NFTs might become a way to transfer I don't know, uh, Assassin's Creed uh, acts uh, to, what could be another, God of Wars uh, game, right? So you use uh, an NFT, you move it from one wallet on Assassin's Creed to a wallet on a God of War, and you have the same kind of sword or axe. Uh, and so, yeah, what I'm really looking at right now is the, the merging, if it happens, of uh, crypto and gaming. If what... Mark Zuckerberg's, uh, Zuckerberg says is anything to go by, he's sort of thinking the same thing right now. He just announced that he, he really wants to build the metaverse. And the last big announcement he made a couple of years ago was that he, he wanted to launch a cryptocurrency. So he's, he's big in two of these things, uh, which is probably a guarantee this effort will totally fail. So we won't ever see this coming together. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, so yeah, I think uh, in big, big in institutional investment, minification and gaming are the three main trends I will be checking. So essentially a lot more use of, uh, what well, potentially use of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in um, the mainstream, a lot more knowledge of it, more integration potentially with the with our lives and the products that that we use uh, would be one view of it but i think that there's what yeah it's very true that there's going to be a lot that sort of happens with with uh, crypto in the next coming years and i think you're uh, very brave for for making prediction predictions around sort of what what we could see um so i think that uh, yeah it's going to be a lot of change yeah, I'm very brave. I, I hate making predictions, so don't hold it against me. But uh, yeah, superb summary, Burgess, as always. <laughs> well, we won't hold you to the predictions, but let's let's see what happens. Um, and if you've got any thoughts on sort of like uh, where where crypto is going next, um, feel free to email us at podcast or podcast at wired.co.uk, and you can also get Jan's book, uh, which is it's called Cryptocurrency. The full title is Cryptocurrency, How Digital Money Could Transform Finance. And you can get it at all good bookshops. And there's a link in the show notes as well. Um, 
time for feedback now. Natasha, we had uh, one piece of feedback to share this week. Yes, it's from Andy. So Andy was uh, commenting on um, our conversation the other week about the return to the office and what is the perfect, most productive day to go back to the office. And we discussed that that doesn't exist. But the people have different theories. They have different combinations of days that they think might work and and not work. And uh, he he mentions um, that he has been uh, testing going in one day a week, like Matt Reynolds. Um, He he went in one day um, a few weeks ago and talked about it extensively. His experience was on the ground reporting uh, from the podcast. And he said he he found some days rather less productive. This is Andy, not not Matt Matt Reynolds. Um, However, he says having a commute in and out ensures that he can switch off properly on the train back and doesn't feel tempted to go back online in the evening. I think that's obviously been echoed throughout the pandemic. There's been a lot of people who've been doing fake commutes. Um, It seems to be a really big thing. Um, And, you know, commuting, although hellish for some people, seems to be a good way of, of balancing work and, and life for other people. He says he's going to try and form a routine with his team to go back and ensure at least those that want to are around for face-to-face conversations and socialising. You know what, that's that's really lovely to hear, Andy. Thank you so much because um, we're still trying to figure out what day of the week we want to go in. Uh, <laughs> I think that we might, you know, try, try and different combinations to see whether we find our perfect one. But at the moment, it looks like Thursday is the, is the front runner uh, for us, which is, in my opinion not a good day of the week but <laughs> that's the only that's the day that seems to be the day that people want to go in so yeah let us know if you have any specific day of the week that you are going into the office to connect with all your colleagues uh, let us know if you have all been affected by the pandemic and are not going in at all let us know if like me you plan to be holed up in your room until september uh, podcast.wire.co.uk and i did your job for you burgess Thank what are you going to do? Thank you very much. That's, that's it, really. Uh, and yeah, thank you for thank you for listening. And we'll speak to you all again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.